This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line and to those who are listening here at 88.7 locally or through the internet somewhere in the world. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. If you have a specific issue maybe you're struggling with in terms of its meaning and application or uh, just looking for biblical counsel, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859, or you can call us at our toll-free number, 1-800-WAGP-980. Call letters WAGP980. Uh, in addition, let me just say to our friends that are local, uh, we are going to have a World Missions Conference. It's coming up in October. Uh, we have Todd Friel, who will be one of our major speakers. And uh, you hear him every day, Monday through Friday at least, here at WAGP. Uh, he comes on at what time and during the day, Rick? He uh, comes on at uh, 4 o'clock in yeah, the afternoon. 4 o'clock, mm-hmm. and so he'll be our major opening speaker on Wednesday night, H.B. Charles, Thursday night, Dr. Tommy Ice, president of the Pre-Trib Organization. He'll be our keynote speaker on Friday evening and then again twice on Sunday morning. Great lineup, missionaries coming in from across the world. Uh, what an opportunity to expose your children. A number of special events the public's invited yes. to, luncheons and yeah. so forth. And I encourage our listeners to go to communitybiblechurch.us slash WMC events to see all of the things that are going to be taking place. And there's an opportunity to uh, register for some because uh, uh, there will be some lunches available and also some child care available for uh, some of the uh, venues so uh, you'll want to check that out, and as appropriate, go ahead and uh, fill out those opportunities. So if you have a question, we give uh, preference to live callers, or you can email us here directly onto the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at net. Let's go ahead, and we'll get started. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Leslie is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, yes, I, um, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Thanks, okay. Leslie. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I started, um, a Bible study with, a, or not a Bible study, a prayer group with a few ladies about, um, oh, four or five months ago. We all go to a different church. And, um, one day, about two or three weeks ago, one of the ladies started, uh, she mentioned to me that she had listened to Joyce Meyer for years and years and years and helped her through her divorce and how much she loved her. And I was so surprised because um, I've known Joyce Meyer as a false teacher for probably 25 years. So I was really surprised to hear her say that. And I mentioned that to her, and she was surprised to hear that Joyce Meyer was not kind of on the up and up. And so I said, well, I'll send her, because I couldn't remember it had been so long. I couldn't remember why. So I sent her some information. And um, a few days later, she said she did read the information, but that she... Um, Joyce Meyer had helped her kind of through her divorce and through a hard time in her life and that um, she was going to continue to listen to her and that she 
uh, hoped I would show her some grace in this area. And this is one of the ladies in the Bible study. And I, I knew she's a little spiritually not quite as mature as the other two of us. But so I, it was it really saddened me um, that she, uh, even though she had been told that, you know, about Joyce Meyer, that she wanted to continue to listen, it kind of felt to me like it showed the position of her heart. And it really saddened me, and I didn't know what to do, and I've been praying about it for several weeks. And then in September, we meet on Wednesday morning, so in lieu of our Bible or our prayer group on Wednesday morning, I decided to um, live stream Audrey's psalm study um, for just the month of September. Um, and so she came to the first one, and then she told me that she wasn't going to come back because she she said she couldn't connect with Audrey, which I thought was an odd reason, but... I think the teaching was just um, was what bothered her. So that saddened me even more, and it, it, it felt like to me it told me the state of her heart. Um, and so I'm really not sure how to proceed with the prayer group. I feel, um, I, I, I just don't know. I feel really saddened by this, and I don't know how to um, show love to her, but to still honor God. And I feel like if I have her continue in the prayer group, that I'll be constantly in the back of my mind thinking, oh, is she going to be, you know, praying some kind of error and and that kind of thing. So I'm just not sure how to proceed. Well, no, it's a great question. I appreciate it very much, Leslie. I, I definitely would not let a single participant of a prayer group discourage me. Just just let's just look at some big picture things. Um, you know, assuming this woman knows the Lord, as you seem to indicate that she does, uh, there are obviously gradations of maturity in Christ, and sometimes when you get together in a small group, you will see some of those differences. Not everyone has an ear to hear. Um, look, Joyce Meyer is not even close, not even close to being a sound Bible teacher. You know, some of the things she's taught, like Jesus stopped being the Son of God. Oh, really? She teaches that Jesus was born again. I don't think so. Uh, she says that Jesus paid for our sins in hell, that he went to hell in our place, was tormented there. No, he paid for those sins on the cross. And she goes on to say in her teachings, um, you can read it in some of her books, that if you don't believe Jesus went to hell and died for sin there, you can't be saved. Uh, she teaches that we can become little gods, and she takes a passage out of John ten thirty four, as do most of the prosperity theologians do and distort that. Um, Joyce Meyer is just a heretic. Um, she's just a false teacher, prosperity theologian, lining her own pockets, um, you know, direct recipient of revelation, new doctrine. Uh, it, you could go to virtually any apologetics website, like maybe org or one of those, and uh, you're going to see an assessment of her theology, what she teaches. And again, you don't want to misrepresent people or folks say, well, this is what she teaches when she doesn't. And usually a credible apologetics ministry that, you know, God's raised them up. Uh, Oftentimes they have gifts of discernment. And one expression as we teach in our spiritual gifts class of the gift of discernment is they'll often focus on people who are false teachers to help the body of Christ um, you know, understand that. And they'll go into the research where they quote chapter and verse out of books or, you know, video clips out of sermons, and then you can do your own assessment. So again, you know, she's not even close to being a sound Bible teacher. And if your friend 
is in a sound church, sooner or later she'll realize that. Here's the sad thing, and this is sadder than her response to you, is that when uh, people go to church very often today, it's all fluff and stuff, and there's no real substance to it. The, the Word of God is not being taught. Uh, feelings, emotionalism is what's being uh, lifted up and, and not the teaching of, of doctrine. And yet Paul in his pastoral epistles affirms that a pastor is to teach and preach sound doctrine. The word sound is the Greek word that means healthy. It's actually a medical term, healthy doctrine. And Joyce Meyer teaches anything but healthy doctrine. Now, I will say parenthetically, it may be that your friend uh, is indeed, you know, responding only emotionally. If I understood it correctly, she was saying that uh, Joyce Meyer helped her through her divorce, and I'm sure it was a very tender time in her life, and she feels good over some of the things that she heard. And that's not to say that Joyce Meyer could not have done that. That's not to say that people like Jimmy Schwaggart, who was visiting prostitutes, couldn't be used of God to introduce people into the kingdom because the Word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's not to say that Jim Baker, who had the largest televangelist audience in the world in the 1980s, didn't help people, all the while he's visiting prostitutes and living immorally, because the Word of God is great and it's big. But it might be, too, that your friend is only a tear, because, listen, when you receive Christ, you're given the mind of Christ. And so if someone sits down and you're not speaking in generalities, but in specific things, you're saying, well, this is what she says on, you know, page 35 of her book. And, um, and this is what the Bible says. Now, do you think Joyce Meyer is right or what we just read here in the scripture? And so you're trying to get her to think. And if she can't think, it typically means she does not have the mind of Christ. And there are millions of people who have false conversions who follow Kenneth Copeland and, you know, Joyce Meyer and Joel Olstein and all these other false teachers, and they don't even have eyes to see that these guys are in gross error. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a caller dictated their question, and what they'd like to know, who is sitting on David's throne at this time? Well, in a literal physical sense, no one. So that is a promise that the angel Gabriel reaffirms from the Old Testament because the Old Testament teaches there's coming a day when indeed the Messiah would sit on David's throne. And so Gabriel comes and you can read about it in in Luke's gospel in the opening chapter. And so that hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. Uh, So there's been no king physically in Israel since uh, they were carried away in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. But the coming king will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will literally physically. Now, that doesn't mean he's not reigning right now in heaven. He is. He's reigning on his throne in heaven. But the promise is is that the Messiah will also reign upon the earth, and that has yet to be seen, but it is going to be seen uh, when the Lord Jesus comes back. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, and then we had another dictated question. Uh, they wanted to know what your take is on the two red heifers brought into Israel this week and how or if that relates to biblical prophecy. Well, it does, and so uh, this is really, as best we can tell, the first time 
since Israel's been gathered back in the land where they have found two pure red heifers. And it's very exciting to the Orthodox people because part of the purification of the temple requires the ashes of a red heifer to be used. And a red heifer has to be truly a pure red heifer. It can't have a black hair on it or a white hair. It has to be perfect. And so there have been other attempts in the past when people have thought, oh, I've got one, and a whole large group of rabbis came in, and then more came in to reaffirm it, and they have found some red heifers, too, that are perfect. So this, indeed, is significant prophetically in the sense that we do know the temple is going to be rebuilt. In fact, if you go with me to Israel, and we're actually working now on finalizing some dates for the fall of 2023, Uh, We don't always go, but we will at least point out the Temple Institute, which is not far from uh, the Western Wall. And in the Temple Institute, you are able to see all of the garments, all of the temple furniture that has been remanufactured. In fact, there are young Cohens or priests who are being trained in the sacrificial system, uh, and they will literally slaughter animals outside the city, and they're learning how to do it biblically. But to have the temple dedicated, you needed some pure red heifers, and now we have them. So that's interesting and significant. Okay, very good. Now, uh, typically, we take questions here on the Bible line as they come in, and they go to the bottom of the pile so that everybody gets in uh, the right order. But we, this one is so timely because it's talking about the coming week that I moved it to the top. Okay. Uh, Tammy from Green, Maine writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I know no one knows the day or hour, and the rapture could be any time. I asked Jesus to be my Savior years ago and have been following him, but I'm nervous now. I'm nervous to know if I'll be raptured or left behind. My husband is telling me something is going to happen this week, or we're going to get into a nuclear war. I'm scared, and he is scaring me more and more. Does that mean I'm not saved? No, it certainly doesn't mean you're not saved, but a question like this certainly should not knock you off center in terms of questioning your salvation. Uh, So I would just say to Tammy, who's uh, contacted us here from Green, Maine, that you make sure that you know that you know that you know, and if there's doubts in your mind, you need to settle those doubts. And sometimes God uses events, even wrong statements, and it is a wrong statement that your husband has made. Um, and let me comment on that in a second. But sometimes God can use wrong statements or bad theology to get us to think. And if it knocks us off kilter, we need to ask why. And so you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the presentation, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And I go through, um, one, why it is that we can have assurance. And then, Tammy, you might want to listen to the first of a series of messages in a series I've done called Basic Discipleship. We actually teach it every Sunday at Community Bible Church because most every single week there are new people coming into the kingdom. We had a man Sunday night who gave his life to the Lord, so I told him, I said, you need to come to the discovery class next Sunday. You can walk in at week 10 and go 10 to 45 and 1 to 9 and get the whole shabam. Uh, But we spend four or five weeks in the first handout that deals with assurance of salvation and the doctrine of eternal security. So that would be a great lesson for you to work through after you listen to the presentation, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? Now, let me say, Tammy, I don't know what mindset your husband's 
operating off of because I can't contact him here. But what often happens in the fall, in the fall of the year when the Jewish holidays take place is that people say, well, the rapture is about to happen. And uh, the rationale behind that is that there are four spring feasts that literally were fulfilled concerning the first coming of the Messiah. Uh, He uh, dies on uh, Passover. He's buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, He's resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost comes, Shavuot, and Again, that's a, a fulfillment of what God said would happen, all concerning the first coming. So there's still three more feasts that take place in the fall of the year, but they're not going to be fulfilled in relationship to the rapture. Those feasts will take place and will be fulfilled during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That is um, that final seven-year segment in human history before Christ comes back to the earth. So it happens after the rapture. But people want to connect the rapture to the fall holidays. They're not, it's not connected to the fall holidays. Those are going to happen in the time frame towards the end of the seven-year period when Israel is in faith and Messiah comes back and uh, he rules and reigns for a thousand years and the three spring, uh, fall feasts will be fulfilled in the days that will follow that. So, again, your husband has gotten you knocked off kilter. But let's just say for the sake of argument that there's going to be, let's let's just say we had a credible source that there's a 95% chance that um, Russia is going to send nuclear weapons here to the United States and bomb us before the week is over. What would that do to you? What will, What would it do to me? It wouldn't do a thing to me. Uh, I'm just going to keep living my life, and I should be doing what I should be doing all along. It's not like I'm going to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, are you saved? You know, I should be caring for the souls of people on an ongoing basis, and if I'm not, then you get the phone call, hey, cousin so-and-so died, and you thought, I should have shared with him. But even when you think about, you know, the coming tribulation that we will not be here for, Jesus, when he uh, describe some of the birth pangs that will unfold in that seven-year period. He said, see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. So when you see growing conflict in the world, that really shows that there's a pregnancy such that when the church is raptured and the water, quote-unquote, breaks and the world goes into labor, don't be frightened. Now, if that's true, certainly in this future time frame, that will be unprecedented in all of human history. Jesus said it will be a time like the world has never seen in all of recorded history, in that if God had not cut short those days, unless those days, he says, had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Um, if he can say we don't need to fear about those days for folks who are reading this during the tribulation period, I mean, what's the worst that could happen to us? Um, if a nuclear bomb came, we could die and we go straight to heaven. Hey, that's not a bad option. I'm not saying we should, you know, do nothing and sit on our hands and we should do everything to uh, promote righteousness. But your husband is just flat out wrong. And a week from now, unless the rapture of the church has happened, then you ought to be able to take your husband to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And there, of course, um, Moses speaks of 
uh, the coming prophet who would be like himself. In Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And, of course, this is a messianic uh, pro- passage because when the Messiah comes, he's going to fulfill three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, as God the Son, God in human flesh, filled all three offices. And so in the New Testament, you'll often have people ask the question, do you think this is the prophet? Or we think we found the prophet, and it's articular. That is the prophet that Moses spoke of, meaning we found the Messiah. And Peter, when he stands up on Pentecost, references the prophet, um, meaning Jesus. Now, he's more than a prophet. He's more than a miracle worker. He's God in human flesh. But then he goes on and he, and he speaks um, a word of warning. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, That is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So your husband, I know he wouldn't probably say he's a prophet, but he's acting like one, and he's giving some event that's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, look, if he lived in biblical times, they'd stone him to death. You wouldn't have a husband by the end of the week. Anyway, it's a good question. So just take a deep breath If you're assured of your salvation, you need to be 100% sure. And if you're not, listen to, would you like to have God as your friend? You can download the Search the Scriptures app in the App Store, searchthescriptures.org. It's kind of a blue triangular um, icon. And then certainly listen to the back to uh, the basic discipleship series in the first uh, handout, which you can also print out via online, Assurance of Salvation and Eternal Security. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, we've got another listener up in Maine. This time, Greg from Portland writes, I have been hearing a lot lately about the potential problem of Luke 2, verse 2. Many are questioning the historical accuracy of this text and thus threatening the accuracy of the Bible. How should this text be understood and interpreted? Well, let me, uh, let me just read that section of Scripture. The chapter opens, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was <coughs> excuse me, the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. By the way, this is a favorite verse that liberal scholars love to use and skeptics to say, mm, definitive error here in the Bible. Why do they want to do that? Because if the Bible's not completely true, it's not really true at all. Uh, I mean, if it's not totally inspired by God, then you don't have to obey it, then you don't have to submit it. Now, they already know it's inspired. Even without you going through my booklet, Five Proofs for the Divine Inspiration of Scripture, which you can get at Amazon, or if you come to a Meet the Pastor, you live locally, we give it to you for free, and I don't make any money off of it. It was an article I wrote several articles in an apologetic series with answers in Genesis, and we took out that chapter and I printed it because it's just such a useful uh, thing for believers to think about and to respond. But uh, let me just say, Quirinius, he takes this census, and the argument is, well, wait a minute. Quirinius was governor around 6 
in 7 AD. That's about 10 years after the birth of Jesus. And yet it says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now we know, of course, that Herod the Great, who's involved in the circumstances around the birth of Christ, wants to kill all the infants. Remember, uh, he goes basically to and under to make sure that no baby is missed. Um, Jesus is probably about six months old when the wise men, so to speak, come um, not to the manger. There is no manger that they come to. They come to the house. Um, But he lives till about 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born somewhere in or before 4 B.C. And yet uh, we know Quirinius was ruling between 6 and 7 A.D. So how do you respond to this? Is this a, a, you know, how do you deal with it? Well, again, the liberal scholars say Luke made a historical error. But I think such a blunder would mean that Luke's gospel obviously was not inspired by the Holy Spirit and it would cast doubt not only on the gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts. You know, you ask a question, it's kind of a trivia question, who wrote most of the New Testament? Most folks would say Paul, but they're wrong. Actually, it was Luke, because if you take the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and you put them together, they are longer in terms of writing than all of the epistles that Paul wrote, even if you give Paul credit for writing Hebrews, which he did not write. Um, There's another way in which to understand it, and it's simply that Quirinius ruled Syria on two separate occasions, and that there were actually two censuses that were taken. And I think that's the case. The first census is mentioned in Luke 2.2. We just read it. And it occurred during the very first term when Quirinius was governor. And then another, a second census happened that Gamaliel references in the book of Acts, the fifth chapter. In Acts 5.37, we read, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up on the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So you've got Gamaliel, who's a famous rabbi, and in the providences of God, he's actually, you know, defending the apostles and for them not to act prematurely, and God is sparing their timetable longer uh, because he said, look, we've seen uprisings like this before, and if this is of God, we'll, we'll, you know, it, it will flush out. And he mentions this census that took place during the time that Judas of Galilee had this, um, you know, rebellion of sorts. Now, Flavius Josephus, who is a Jewish man, he ha- he carries kind of a Roman name because he's working under the authority of a Roman Caesar. He references this very passage uh, of Scripture that Judas of Galilee, um, that there was a census that was taking place during that time. Now, think about Luke for just a second. He not only writes the Gospel of Luke, he writes the book of Acts. He's no idiot. In fact, when you learn Greek, usually one of the first books that you read is the Gospel of John in the Greek New Testament. If you go to a seminary where they teach Greek, and sadly today you can get a Master's of Divinity degree, they used to have at least some years of Greek behind it and not even study Greek. So, you know, people have lessened all these degrees and they're giving them away now because these seminaries are desperate to keep their doors open. They're compromising their policies on egalitarianism so that more women can come and, quote unquote, be preachers or, you know, well, we won't have a campus here and we won't be able to pay the salaries. Uh, There is a um, 
uh, time in our nation that is unfolding where people are lukewarm and men considering going to full-time ministry is being diminished. I say all that to say that Luke is no idiot. Luke has and writes with some of the most complex Greek in all the New Testament. Maybe the one exception to that would be the writer to the Hebrews. He writes with a high level of Greek. He's a well-versed man. And even secular theologians have referenced Luke as one of the foremost um, theologians of the New Testament era. He says he's writing an orderly account. So for him to mention two senses, you know, even from a human point of view, it would be unlikely uh, for such a meticulous historian like Luke to make such a blatant mistake in these in this timeline, you know, of two senses. From a divine point of view, it would be impossible because if you believe that these men were moved along by the Holy Spirit and all Scripture is inspired by God, then indeed, you know, um, he wrote flawlessly. Look, we may not always have the latest word, but we have the last word. Let me give you another example. There was no example in historical uh, writings or archaeological finds outside of Holy Scripture that said there was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. None. And then in 1961, there at Caesarea, when you go with me to Caesarea, if you go with me to Israel, we visit Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea by the sea. And there's a, a block of stone that was found. Uh, they actually were using it as part of the stairway in the uh, in, in the uh, auditorium there so that um, Herod, um, you know, was killed in and eaten by worms. And, and they found this stone with a dedication on it from a temple that had been built there in Caesarea. And it said, you know, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, dedicates this temple to, you know, the divine Augustus. And then for the first time in human history, we had documented proof outside of the Bible, that there was such a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And not to mention, again, you know, people who lived close to the biblical era wrote of Pontius Pilate, the church fathers, the late church fathers. Nobody questioned the historicity of this man. But when it came to secularist, non-Christian writings and the archaeological finds, there was none to this date. Well, now there is. And so their mouths have been shut they have been proven wrong. Um, The Bible has never been proven wrong, not once. There's never been an archaeological find that has proved the Bible to be in error. So again, the motivation behind liberal Protestants and Catholics, because there's more and more growing liberal Catholics, and the skeptics who want to say, here's an error in the Bible, the motivation behind it is they do not want to submit to the Word of God. And they know it's the Word of God, even though you may not have argued various proofs to show that the Bible is uniquely inspired, they know it's the Word of God, just like they know the existence of God. You don't have to argue proofs for the existence of God because man innately knows that God exists through creation and conscience. And when men hear the Word of God, they know it's the Word of God because it pricks and pokes at the heart like no other book that has ever been written. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got James who's standing by on line one. Thanks for holding, James. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. 
Uh, I had a question regarding Second uh, Chronicles thirty two thirty one, uh, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, uh, this. Was with Hezekiah, and in that verse it said God left him to test him and see what was in his heart. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the, that concept of God leaving you to to test you? Uh, it's a it's a great question in. You see examples way before Hezekiah. If you remember in, uh, let me just turn to the the Torah, Um, you have in the uh, Shema, of course, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is is one. Uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every Jew recites this every Sabbath in the synagogues, whether they're Reformed or conservative or Orthodox, whatever brand of Judaism, this is like central to um, biblical belief, and it's central to our beliefs. We don't worship three gods. I was um, speaking to a Mormon the other day, and, and um, you know, they're all confused, and, you know, on the doctrine of the Trinity, and they say, well, God can't be triune, and no, God exists in one God, but then he goes on to say, and he's, he exhorts them to, you know, dads and granddads, so to speak, to teach these to your children as you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, and you bind them as a sign on your hand, they'll be as frontals on your forehead, you'll write them on the doorposts of your house, and then it shall come about, he says, when the Lord, hear Yahweh, your God, Elohim, brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." And so, again, he reminds them that God is a jealous God. And, but he's saying, don't forget me. Do not forget me. And he says the same thing in chapter 10. And he reminds them, he said, God is going to test what is in your heart. He's going to see what you are thinking. Um, you know, when you've eaten these things and you're satisfied, when your hands and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God. And so he reminds them that God is going to test them. It says the same thing in the ninth chapter. So I think what we have going on here with Hezekiah is the same thing. God is testing to see what is in his heart. He wants to see his commitment um, fleshed out. And God does that sometimes. You know, God brings us through tests. Remember, tests aren't always solicitations to evil. Those are called temptations. Tests are not solicitations to evil. They can become a solicitation to evil if we don't respond properly. But a temptation is designed from the evil one to tear us down. Tests are given by God to build us up. And so sometimes God will allow us to be tested because he wants to basically put spiritual steel in your spine as to what you're going to do. I remember I was a brand new pastor and, um, you know, I'd always taught that a woman should be a worker at home. And, and then I came to this church and there was a couple and I, I want to be sensitive here because they're no longer here, but they didn't like my teaching. 
and uh, they thought probably because they together made a lot of money and tied to the church that I would back off on my position, but I didn't. And so when I was actually preaching through an epistle, I couldn't like cater the sermon to them. It was a test. And when you respond properly to a test, it puts spiritual steel in your heart. So I think that's what you see. If you'll just sit down and read uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 10, you'll see this theme repeated with the actual words where God is testing to see what is in your heart. Um, and you put that together with what we read here, and I, and I think it, it becomes pretty clear. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sharon from Bluffton would like you to answer the following questions for her Catholic relative. St. Anne is not mentioned in the Bible. What apocryphal book does mention her? And is Anne the mother of the Virgin Mary, or did that information come from Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, we do not know that the mother of Anne definitive, uh, mother of Mary definitively was Anne. Um, there's a couple of sources. There's an apocryphal source, and then it's it's an Islamic tradition. Islam esteems Mary very, very high. Uh, with that said, there's an apocryphal book. It's written around 150 A.D. Uh, some wouldn't really even say it's apocryphal, to use your term, but pseudepigrapha. So there's the apocryphal writings that usually are isolated between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. There's a 400-year period where there is no one who spoke in Israel. And, in fact, uh, they made it into the first edition of the King James Bible, but if you read the original introduction to the King James Bible that was printed in 1611, they made it crystal clear that while we are including these books between the Testaments, we do not believe they are inspired by God, but we're putting them here for their historical value. Um, they're never quoted by the New Testament writers. Now, somebody might take issue with that concerning the book of Jude, but listen to my sermon on Jude that I just did. Jude didn't quote it. What came first, the chicken or the egg? And so uh, there was certainly a oral tradition that Jude codifies, or he was given by direct revelation that he puts in his book, and yet there's a couple of apocryphal books that mention two issues. Well, they, they just took an oral tradition and they incorporated them. But those oral traditions happen to be true. The gospel of, and so there's those historical books, which, by the way, do not, um, com, they, they do not, um, they're not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. There's a lot of truth in them, and that they shed light on what happened in that 400-year period, and for that reason, they're important. And those who are involved in the translation process of the King James Bible recognize that. Uh, they shed light on history, and some historical prophecies that would even be fulfilled during the intertestament period that the prophet Daniel writes about, but they're not quoted by the New Testament writers. In fact, there's some things in there that are just man-made. You know, why should we pray for the dead, as Second Maccabees teaches? Well, we shouldn't, because the moment you're dead, at that point in time, you're either in righteous Sheol or righteous Hades, or you're in unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. And so that's not a biblical 
dogma, but the Catholics, of course, use it in order to teach their false teachings. Well, after the New Testament was written, there was a number of gospels and epistles that were done by false writers. So the gospel according to St. Thomas. I had to read it when I was in seminary. It's heretical. Uh, It's not inspired by God. And there is the gospel of James. It's written around 150 AD. Certainly not the apostle James. It's an entirely different... um, Greek kind of vocabulary or writing style. You know, if someone read a book to me and they said, who do you think the author was? Well, some authors write with a, you know, a very clear style. Like I, I, I could hear Chuck Swindoll. He often speaks the way he writes. And no, that that's Chuck Swindoll, I can tell you. Well, I can read um, James, you know, and the way he writes and even the Greek vocabulary he uses to write. And if I read the Gospel of James, I'd say, oh, these are two different writers. So he makes mention of Anne as being the mother of Mary. Is it possible? Very possible. Is it likely? Probably so. Is it biblical? No, it's not found in the canon of Scripture. And, of course, as time progressed, Anne took a more prominent view uh, in the church. For the first time in the 4th century, it said that her body was so protected by God that she was able to conceive Mary immaculately. We call it the immaculate conception. That is that Mary was conceived without sin. That becomes ultimately a growing uh, teaching around the 15th century where Roman Catholics were teaching that, but it doesn't become an ex-cathedra from the chair of the Pope and become an official doctrine of the church until 1854. So Pius, Pope Pius IX, um, said that Mary was conceived without sin, that she was sinless. And so Mary began to take a more prominent role. And in some countries of the world, if you go typically to the Eastern Orthodox nations like Ukraine and Russia and so forth, Mary has a very exalted position. If you go to South America, South American, Latin Catholic, so forth, a very exalted position. She used to have that position in the United States with all the various ethnicities uh, that came in from Western Europe. And so like in the town I grew up in, there was a Polish Catholic church, there was an Italian Catholic church, a German Catholic church, and and Mariology was really big. Now those ethnicities have pretty much died off. Usually language churches are one generation where the prominent language is different. But still, it's a dogma of the Roman church, not to be confused with the Annunciation of Mary, where she's announced that she's to, by the angel Gabriel that she's going to carry the Messiah, nor the assumption of Mary. Now, we think as Protestants of the Immaculate Conception in reference to the Lord Jesus, but Mary was a sinner, and she acknowledged she was a sinner in what we call the Song of Mary, the Magnificat from the Latin Bible. The Song of Praise is the Latin word Magnificat. And uh, she says, my soul exalts in God, my Savior. So St. Anne, uh, as uh, time progressed, took a more prominent role in Roman Catholic theology. In fact, when we go to Jerusalem, we go to the Pool of Bethesda, and the place where Jesus healed a paralytic who had been, you know, basically uh, crippled for 38 years, and right next door, not 15 yards from the Pool of Bethesda is the Church of St. Anne. 
that was built by the Crusaders. And we go in there, not because we're magnifying St. Anne, we go in there because of the acoustics of this 12th century church are just absolutely astounding. And so usually we go in and uh, we'll sing some little ditty that everybody knows, and it's like, whoa, you know, we could we could tape this and put it on WAGP. It's so good. It's not that we're so good. It's that the acoustics are just absolutely stunning. So other than her church, I don't have a whole lot to say about her, but let's go on to the next question. All right, very good. I guess that's why we sound better in the shower. It's the all in the that's acoustics. That's right. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, we've got a Rick, good name, on line one. So thanks for holding, Rick. You are on the Bible line. Go ahead, Rick. We're listening. Well, I've, I've got a question for you. Uh, when, you know, he was just talking about the census and what have you, but when was 01, 01, 01, 01, 01, 01 AD, at what point did that come about? I've, I've always believed that when Christ took his first breath, AD started in the year of our Lord. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, no, it's it, it's a good question, and, you, and, you, and you're right in a broad sense, but you're wrong in a specific sense. So you're basically asking, you know, when did we get the um, Gregorian or Julian calendar, and when did they come into existence? The Gregorian calendar was introduced in, you know, the 15, uh, I think like 1580-something by one of the popes, Gregory, I think it was the 13th, um, whereas uh, the calendar, the initial calendar, um, came in around the time of Nicaea, around 350, 354. Um, so with that's A.D. So um, we didn't have, like, the same kind of calendar. Like, if you ask uh, the Jews um, what year uh, is it on their calendar, uh, they would give you a very different answer. Now, they'll speak of BCE and ACE, but the year right now is 5782, uh, and they're dating that from the time of the creation, 5782. That's where they would put it. So there came a time when, through the affirmation of the resurrection, uh, man said, let's recreate our calendars. And so when they did that, it put the birth of Christ four years before Christ, approximately, and his death around 32 A.D. Uh, with that said, in broad terms, B.C. we use before Christ. You're right, 2022, Anna, Anna Domini, uh, Dominus being God, annual Anna, uh, in the year of the Lord. Um, so this is 2022 in the year of the Lord. And so... Again, I hope that helps. I know it can be a little confusing. It gets a little more complicated when you look at the Gregorian calendar because, you know, they realize, oh, we're off a little bit here. And uh, and that's why, depending on uh, which branch of the Christian faith you are in, it will influence when they celebrate Easter and Christmas and the like. Um, but, again, in broad senses, the calendar that we have today was man-made. God has his own calendar in heaven, and that's, um, that's the one ultimately that is important. 
All right, very good. Yeah, I, I kind of had been like <laughs> Rick believed that, you know, the Jesus minute that was Jesus born was born, there's yeah, zero. Yeah, you know, right, right. Yeah. Well, and what happened was is, you know, initially that's the way people thought, but then they went back and they said, oh, we were actually off. And uh, actually, Jesus was born, if we're going to keep our calendar without changing all the dates, we got to move it back to 4 B.C. They were off. And, and in fact, um, you know, what, how, how many days in a year? You say, well, 365 days. Well, not exactly. Uh, 365 days point whatever the numbers are that come after that. And so if you have these small little microcosms after that, then given enough time, you're going to find out, oh, the seems like the leaves are changing early this year. Uh, here it is August and they're red already and they realize they were off. The people who have had the most accurate timekeeping ever before we had all the electronics with NASA and so forth were the Jewish people because they didn't use purely a solar calendar. And so what did we do? We corrected our solar calendar with a leap year. Um, every four years. And, but the Jews have a lunar slash solar calendar combined, and they had actually the most accurate timekeeping. Anyway, that's a whole nother subject. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Joshua writes, I have been listening to your podcast uh, uh, channel on Spotify and YouTube for about four to six months now. I absolutely enjoy the way you deliver scripture. One item I've been struggling with for the last two years of my walk with Christ and the understanding of scripture is the rapture. I am listening to your current sermons, but I'm not understanding where in Scripture the rapture is described happening prior to the Antichrist and prior to the tribulation. I I don't agree with an explanation without support of Scripture. No one, even yourself thus far, is correct in explaining this. I completely agree there are no prophecies needed for the rapture to take place. I also do not see anything in Scripture stating it'll take place prior to. The only place I see the rapture taking place is in Revelation, not 2 Thessalonians. Any scripture recommendation could be helpful and insightful to my study. And so where is he calling from? We, oh, we don't know. It didn't say. Yeah, so all I would say to Joshua is you've already made a contradictory statement in your own question. You said that you didn't believe anything prophetically needed to happen for the rapture to take place. And yet you're not convinced that the rapture happens before the tribulation. So you want biblical support. So right off for you to say nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. That refers to an imminent return. Imminency means that Jesus could come at any moment. That nothing has to happen for the second coming to take place. All kinds of things have to happen. The Jews have to be back in the land. Um, Jesus, when he gives the Olivet Discourse and he's answering their questions concerning his return, he he talks about those not who are in Dallas, but those who are in Judea flee to the wilderness. There's an assumption that Jews are back in the land. There's an assumption that they're able to have a rebuilt temple so that the Antichrist can go in and defile it and so on and so forth. So you cannot hold to an imminent return unless you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, that's not the answer to your question. That's just a, I'm just trying to highlight in your own thinking that there's a contradiction even within your own question. 
But with that said, there's a lot of biblical doctrines that aren't derived from a single verse of Scripture. But when you harmonize a number of passages together, what we call systematic theology, then you can affirm that doctrine. For instance, there's no one single passage in all the Bible that teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you take a number of passages and put them together, you realize, oh, um, it can mean nothing except the fact that there's one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Now, part of the reason people do not come to the conclusion of a pre-tribulational rapture is because they do not literally interpret the Scripture. They spiritualize the Scripture. And by literal uh, interpretation, we're not saying that God doesn't use metaphors. And, you know, if we say, well, Grandma kicked the bucket, what do we mean? We mean she died. Now, that's a, a metaphorical statement, but when we understand the metaphor, then we can literally interpret it and apply it. And so a literal interpretation would only lead one to a pre-tribulational rapture and a distinction between Israel and the church. So if God has no future for Israel, as sadly many people are teaching today, if there's no future for Israel, then certainly um, the next event is the second coming. We all go to heaven. Uh, there's no coming Antichrist, no coming tribulation period, because you're not plainly teaching the Scripture with a literal hermeneutic. You have to apply a different principle of interpretation when it comes to uh, passages returning, referring to the return of Christ than to the rest of Scripture. But again, the rapture and the second coming are two distinct events. Hey, at the rapture, the believers are translated in the air. There's no translation at the second coming. Jesus comes back to the earth. He raises up the dead. The unrighteous dead are carried away into judgment. The righteous dead are left to remain in their natural bodies. Again, the rapture is imminent, whereas the second coming, it's a specifically driven prophetic event. Um, he comes in the air in the rapture. He comes to the earth in the second coming. He um, claims his bride at the rapture. He comes back with his bride at the second coming. Uh, on and on and on we could go. There are just numerous passages. So what I would suggest, because it's an armchair question that you do, is go to searchthescriptures.org and take the course on eschatology. Eschatos is last things. And in that course, if you'll work through it, I'll give you 10 reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture. So if you want to be lazy, well, then just hold on to your contradictory question. But if you want to search the scriptures and study them, then take the course or listen to the revelation. I did 70 hours of teaching on the revelation, and that will answer your question as well. Thank you for asking it, though, and don't ever be afraid to write back. God bless you today as you walk with Jesus Christ. Oh,